0: It's time for the Seventh Avenue Project on Central Coast Public Radio, KUSP. I'm Robert Polly. So, um, as I'm sure just about everyone in our listening radius knows, it was 20 years ago yesterday the Loma Prieta earthquake rocked our part of the world. And this being the day after the anniversary, I thought we'd spend this hour considering the aftermaths of disasters. In particular, how we, we the people, respond to calamity, and how the worst of times can bring out the best in us. In the first half of the show, Pulitzer Prize winner Tracy Kidder talks about what it takes to look at and look past atrocity. And in part two, Bay Area essayist Rebecca Solnit on the way ordinary people react to catastrophic events. She spent the last couple of years studying historic and contemporary disasters and says that by and large people acquit themselves quite well. That's all coming up on the 7th Avenue Project. Okay, part one of today's show, the well-known nonfiction writer Tracy Kidder talking about his new book, Strength in What Remains. It's the story of Deo Gracias, an African refugee who fled a civil war and ethnic cleansing in Burundi. He came to New York with pretty much nothing to his name, but accomplished some remarkable things. Deo ended up with a career in public health and eventually returned to Burundi to work for reconciliation and healing there. And I should mention that Tracy Kidder first met Deo when he, that is Deo, was working with Partners in Health. That's the humanitarian medical organization founded by Dr. Paul Farmer, who Tracy wrote about in his 2003 book, Mountains Beyond Mountains. And to start off our interview, I asked Tracy what got him thinking that Deo might make a worthy subject for a new book.
1: It was something rather small that first really grabbed me, that that made me think I might want to write about this. And that was that Deo had, had arrived in New York City uh, after a long, fearsome flight, first uh, from ethnic violence in Burundi uh, and then from the genocide in Rwanda. He'd escaped... Rwanda and then, in a series of what almost died by accident, he ended up in new york city uh and uh with no friends or relations no english and and you know memories of very fresh memories of horror so that you know he was confusing past and present um but he and he and he lived for a time in central park and I remember what he told me when he was first telling me this story he said you know that before going to bed in Central Park, he would look all around him. Uh, to make sure no one was watching because uh, he realized that anyone who saw him entering the park at that hour would know that he was homeless. So what he was saying was he wasn't afraid of what would happen to him in the park, you know, if he surrendered himself to sleep there. He was afraid of the disdain or pity of strangers. (laughs) You know, really, that that fear of the disdain or pity of strangers who will never be anything but strangers. I, I, I could imagine myself feeling that way in his place. And 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 feeling this, I, I felt like I could pr- maybe find a way into his story.
0: But d- did you think, I mean, um, that you were going to tell a potentially straightforward story of a refugee mm-hmm. coming to the U.S. with nothing but the clothes on his back, basically, which is what happened with Dayo, mm-hmm. uh, not even speaking the language, knowing nobody, being homeless, sleeping in Central Park, and somehow, somehow... Uh, through pluck and luck, really, um, you know, making something of himself, was that the story you thought you were going to tell?
1: Basically, except I, I didn't know because I didn't know the whole, all the ins and outs of the story, and I hadn't gone visited the these the stations of his life with him in New York and in East Central Africa, and I uh, and and I have to be. Nowadays, you know, I mean, as I've as I've done this over the years, I've realized, you know, one of the great things is to be surprised,
2: mm-hmm. or
1: or or at least, you know, you, it's fine to have preconceived notions about everything, uh, but but it, not fine, and it, but and it, it even makes it more fun somehow when they're all when they all get smashed, a bit. <laughs> or when something deepens and widens for you. So, I, you know, I didn't know exactly how I was going to tell this uh, this this story, and I ended up telling it in, I think, a rather unusual way.
0: You did. We, we get two stories here, really. Uh, we get the, the story that I just tried to summarize in the first half of the book, uh, which has, you know, almost a Horatio Alger quality, uh, amazing rise from, from, from nothing to something, that is, a guy who's mm-hmm. very accomplished and, and on his way to getting an M.D., mm-hmm. but already contributing to world health in various ways. Mm-hmm. And then we get a second story, uh, and the second story you title uh, it 's the second half of the book gusimbura mm-hmm. what 's that what 's that word mean
1: It means to remind people of something unpleasant by uttering the names of the dead and it is a, a very bad thing to do it 's a verb
0: do not Gusimbura someone, do not stir up bad memories, do no. not remind them of unpleasant history. Uh, let sleeping
1: dogs lie mm-hmm. it 's a it 's worse than impolite in in deo 's culture to do that. Um, And so the second part, in the first part of the book, I basically tell you Deo's memories as he told them to me. And and one of the one of the reasons, by the way, for having this second part, which opens, in which the first person narrator kind of returns, is to be just a small reason though. But was to acknowledge openly to the reader that I know how plastic memory is. These were 12 and 13, and in some cases, you know, 25, 30 year old memories of Deo. So I know they're not; they can't be exactly accurate, although. I came to be feel absolutely sure that the the, the story and its general and its entrails is absolutely true. But anyway, that in the second part, so we see the first part we hear Dale's memories in my words. Uh and in the second we see him in the throes of those memories as he and I revisited um you know the New York and Burundi and Rwanda.
0: Well, in the uh in the second half, again you you called the second part of the book Gusimbura. Yeah. You Gusimburaed him.
1: Yeah, I did and i'm not entirely happy i'm still not entirely happy about having done that i i you know perhaps was just blind i didn't know how hard it would be for him to go back to some of these places um with me you know uh it was just like those memories were lying in wait for him uh, you know, in, in, in some of those places in Rwanda and Burundi. Well,
0: you're a very sensitive guy. I know that for a fact. Um, I've talked to you, and I know that. And you were taking him back or go, or accompanying him back to Burundi, to the sites where he had literally waded through piles of bodies, yeah. where he had witnessed things that are so terrible yeah. that uh, you know, it brings tears to your eyes to even talk about them. And he's an incredibly gentle soul. In yes,
2: the, he really
0: is. Um, so you must have known it would upset him.
1: Well, I, you know, it, it was obvious once I, once I once we were there that it was upsetting him. I, you know, I, I'm not so sure that I knew, you know, or or maybe I didn't allow myself to think about it. In any case, it wa I, I was, I was sorry to have done that. Um, and there were a couple of times when I offered to stop. Um,
0: you, in fact, say that there were times when you hoped he would take you up I, well, yeah, on there, that offer,
1: you know, time after time. But I think there were a couple of occasions I where should...
0: where you thought maybe you should give up.
1: Yeah. And he, but he declined the offer.
0: And and why did he allow you to spend uh, <laughs> on, countless hours over a course of several years, and yes. and particularly to take him to the sites of atrocities?
1: Um, I don't know. You don't know. But I also know that you know he had other ambitions, which we ought to talk about. Uh, one of which was to build a, you know, here he is an American citizen. Um, he didn't have to go back to Burundi, But in in a in a sense, he postponed his continuing. Education to go back there, and you know, after having assembled all these America, legions of American friends and um, and create a health a clinic and a, and, a, and a public health system in a rural area, uh, which is flourishing now. By the way, uh, something called Village Health Works. So perhaps he felt that if I told his story, you know, it might help in mm. raising funds for this. Mm. I, I I don't know though, and I can't I can't speak for him, and he is not willing to. About these
0: things at the moment. Uh, so. uh, yeah, he's not doing the, any publicity with no, you. No, no, absolutely not. Yeah. and
1: I and I think that's just fine.
0: Right. So, so you in the second half of the book become a, a, a character in in the story, and and you and I have talked about how you did that with yourself in uh, Mountains Beyond Mountains, to a certain extent. But you did that in that book a, a very different thing. I mean, I think you you described to to me how you put yourself in there just to contrast what you consider to be an ordinary person yourself with an extraordinary one, Paul Farmer.
1: Yeah, and also to to serve as a kind of proxy for the reader. Yeah. I mean, you know, to to explain to, to acknowledge the kind of psychological discomfort that a person that talented and self sacrificing and, and passionate, you know, can can cause in a in a you know, most people, um, and 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 to say you know here's the here's the reasons for my discomfort.
0: And, right, um, right.
1: You know, and somehow it seems like it, that seems like, well, but in this case it was different. Yeah, I don't know exactly what i was up to here. I, I wanted to. I just need. I just felt I needed that first person narrator to make this come alive.
0: Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, after having really strayed from your um, your history as a nonfiction writer into memoir. Uh, in your last book, my detachment, mm-hmm. um, and made yourself a subject. Mm-hmm. Um, is is it possible you're more comfortable bringing yourself I- into your books about other subjects now?
1: Well, I don't know. I've I've often thought. I I really do think that point of view is just a choice among tools, and that you know what what I'm looking for anyway is is the right place to stand to tell a story from. And, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it I don't think there's. Obviously, if you're writing a memoir, you generally are going to write in the first person. Although there have been some great uh, autobiographies in the third, you know, and uh, but but the education of Henry Adams, Gertrude yeah. Stein, you know, yeah. But I, I, I'm actually kind of I, I, I sort of resist the first person. I, I mean, I almost for a long time, it seemed to me like the, the the last recourse. I started my that memoir that you referred to about my year as an undistinguished soldier in Vietnam. <laughs> It's called my detachment. I started that one, that book, in 1985, and didn't come back to it for about 20 years. I was having a hard time doing it, well, yeah. and maybe I'm more comfortable now. But I'm not. I I, I can still imagine writing another book in completely in the third person as I have in the past. I just think you know you got to figure out for you you know what's what's the best way to do it.
0: Right. I want to talk a little bit about this uh, trek you took with Deo. To Burundi and Rwanda, mm-hmm. again revisiting some of the um, I'm going to use your word again. I love it so much. Stations mm-hmm. uh, in this escape that he made from the ethnic violence. And just a little background here. I think most Americans, uh, of course, know about Rwanda, but they don't know squat about Burundi. Mm-hmm. It's a neighboring country. It is ethnically divided between Hutus and Tutsis, like Rwanda. And it has had a history of of civil violence between the two groups that goes back quite a ways. It's very complicated, and you and I can't possibly Mm -hmm. unravel it in this conversation. But let's just say that in '93 there was another outbreak. Um, Deo, who's a Tutsi, was sort of caught in the crossfire, uh, and Hutu militias were stalking uh, Tutsis, and he had to uh, make this, this, this escape from the country, eventually getting to the U.S.
1: Right. I, I the, the only the only thing I'd add to that is that in Burundi uh it, it was not one-sided it wasn't like the genocide in Rwanda there there were the, the army which was commanded entirely by tutsis was had been slaughtering hutus for years and it,
0: Yeah. Right, there's a cycle of back and forth <laughs> yeah. among the groups. Yeah. Uh, in this case, you know, because Deo is a Tutsi, he was fleeing Hutus.
1: He ended up he ended up fleeing the country for Rwanda, along mostly with Hutus who were fleeing the army's retaliation, which
0: was, the Tutsi army yeah which
1: was which was imminent, yes, so and
0: then he goes out of the out of the frying pan into the fire,
1: yeah, then he's in the really is in the fire
0: yeah um now among the places you went uh you went really to the epicenter for for deo of of this mm-hmm. of this horrific chapter in his life um. And that is where things got started. Yeah, a, a hospital, the hospital where he had been working. Yeah, yeah he was working. At, was he an intern there? Yeah, more or less. So he's working there in October of 93. Correct. And um, the um, Hutu president, elected president of Burundi, mm-hmm. is assassinated. Yeah. It's presumed by Tutsis. It was by Tutsis. It was by it was Tutsis. By people in the army. And this president had been sort of a peacemaker, uh, yes. a reconciler. And so uh, Hutu retaliation was instantaneous. Uh, here's Deo working in this hospital. Here's word that the assassination has taken place and uh, warned that he's going to be in big trouble as a Tutsi. He hides, and immediately uh, the hospital is descended upon by some Hutu forces who go on a killing spree in the hospital while, while he hides under a bed.
1: Well, what happened was he, he ran into his room, uh, and he hid under the bed, and he forgot to close his door. And not long after that, as he remembers it, um, two pairs of bare feet are in the doorway of of these militiamen, um, and he hears them say, yeah, "The cockroach is gone. He ran away because he left the door open. They didn't bother to come in and check under the bed, and then he heard them smashing into other rooms, the rooms of people who had locked their doors, and listened to what was a, what seemed, at least to him, to be a rather indiscriminate slaughter. Yeah, um, and. And then when it was over and the hospital was quiet and the darkness came, he literally waded through bodies outside and down into a river valley, and then for six months he was on the run on foot.
0: And so you accompanied him back to the site of this hospital. Yeah. And this really is, you know, in some ways climactic in the book. Uh, it was for me. Yeah. That trip. Yeah, well, tell me about your experience there.
1: Well, um, you know, I don't think we were ever in any danger in Burundi physically. Um, but I was getting more and more upset because he was, up, you know, I was clearly upset. His stomach was bothering him just on this trip back. And at one point I said, you know, we were sort of halfway there. And I said, maybe we should just go back. And he said, no, I'm going to shut up. He, and then and then I said it again. Or I, I can't remember exactly. I remember he, he turned around and looked at me and he said, you may not see the ocean, but, but right now we're in the middle of the ocean and we're, we are going have to keep on
2: swimming, mm, mm.
1: which was basically his nice way of saying shut up. Yeah. And when we got there we hadn't expected that any a lot of most of that hospital had been destroyed um but and we didn't we didn't we didn't think that there'd be anything left but there was in fact a piece of it which had been all fixed up on the outside um and it was the piece where Deo happened to live when he was in that hospital and and we went inside and the place was it was horrifying inside it it, it was the walls are streaked with excrement from birds, and, and this weird bee's nest hanging over. His head. it was completely abandoned and unused, you know. And I think, uh, you know, a lot of things were conspiring for Dale at that moment to make him angry in a way I'd never seen him before. But, he, and as he said to me later, I said, I don't know if you noticed, but I was, I wasn't, I was somewhere else. And I said, you know, I, I could have hard, hardly have failed to notice. It was kind of, it was, it was scare-fying. I don't know. Mm. Um, he actually at one point he tried to it, it, anyway uh it it was um I felt while we were there that I was inside a dream of his uh, but you know like it, as if I were a character inside the dream, but looking at the dream, you know and uh, it was um and i all I could think. Uh, Maybe I'm just getting old and I've lost my nerve, but I wanted to get out of there in the worst way. You know, I really wanted to get out of there.
0: It's, it's, it's very funny the way you represent yourself as a sort of nervous and very genteel kind of guy in a way, and you say, I'm afraid I got vehement. <laughs> it's true.
2: <laughs> yeah
0: but this 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 hospital it, it it doesn't really have direct evidence of the slaughter does it
1: no no it was all it was all cleaned up all that cleaned, cleaned up. up and the outside was all fixed up and but and, here's in a country which you know which is ter- suffering terribly you know from lack of uh, uh, public health and medical facilities and and here's one that somebody had spent money to fix up just cosmetically it was yeah, kind of um, well, and,
0: and you find it so more a lot more spooky. For instance, am I right in, than some other places you visited? For instance, uh, the a yes, uh, Technical true. School, where as many as fifty thousand people were were massacred. Order, yeah.
1: And and but there there's a museum,
0: and there's it's full of bones.
1: Yes, but it's a museum, and they're all and everything is very orderly, and you have this sense that you know in, in the aftermath, ration, reason has prevailed, and and this is an intentional place that you know mm-hmm. there's a place for set up for a purpose. But um, in the other, I felt as though something else was still in
2: charge. Mm. Well,
0: this and, gets to the central problem of the book, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that is talking, uh, unburdening yourself of the past, uncovering it, or or covering it up and shutting up and moving on.
1: It's a, it's a central question, and of course there's no answer to it. I mean, obviously, for human society... Um, Remembrance is tremendously important. It's important for any individual, you know. But there is also this feeling, at least of light that, that came over me uh, with Dale, and after a while, that too much remembering is could you know stifle a person or a culture, you know, and that there was some there was something also to be said for a culture with a word like Basimba. I think I, I think I'm quoting from myself here. But, yeah, yeah, but just... uh, but but you know, it's not. It's not a simple. There's not a simple answer to this. It's just. um, I don't know. I mean.
0: (laughs) Well, I think you manage. uh, I I think you you might take this as a compliment. You manage to give this book a very unreconciled quality, a restless, unsettled quality. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the
1: way I feel about all these things. Yeah. You know, it's sort of like you know one of the amazing things that Dale did when he when he went to Columbia. I mean, he majored in biochemistry, but he also took every philosophy course he could. The least least marketable thing you could do as a penniless immigrant, right? Refugee. Yeah. Um, why did he do that? I asked him why he did it. He said, I wanted to understand what had happened to me. And of course, he didn't get the answers, because nobody gets answers from philosophy. You just get more questions. But it, it is in that vein, you know, uh, 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 to me, it's not... It's, it's part of what I was trying to represent in this book is, well, well was Dale's quest to, to understand and Failing that, to find some resolution, and, and it's what's clear to me, is that, you know, for him the answer to all, to, to these eternal questions he was asking about, really about nature of God and good and evil and so on, was was that, uh, in the end, you had to do something. Mm-hmm. You know, that the answer could sometimes lay in your hands, or an answer that at least could, for the moment, still those questions. And and for him it was taking action and going back and trying to begin to rebuild, a, you know, his country, his beloved country. Really.
0: He um he he has this dream of building a clinic. He's had it since he was a youth. Yeah. Uh, and he's he's actually done it in a place called Kayanza.
1: Yeah, I changed all at his request. I changed all the names. In okay. Brady. But uh, yes, and it the, 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 the actually there's a has a wonderful website villagehealthworks.org. I'll look it up. It's um it's really it's an amazing operation. Uh, Deo isn't there now. I mean he got he launched it, he founded it, he inspired all these all the Americans who donated quite generously to it and and you know, it's it's a it's a Burundian operation with the the head doctors Burundian, um the their community health workers partners in health, the Paul Farmers Organization has sent lots of people over to help them with nursing training and so on and so forth. And this is a place that um in its first year and a half of operations, saw 28,000 different patients, you know, including patients from as far away as Tanzania and Congo. Mm. And I, I tell a little story toward the end of my book about the patient, the guy who comes, he's not a patient, he's not sick, he just wants to see the clinic, and Dale asks him why he's come, and the guy says, to see America. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I, this, this, this. Was, I, I was wondering, you know, was this a misconception for us to live up to? But then, then I heard Obama's talk, you know, uh, from he, Ghana, and he, it, this it seems to me like a it, 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 Obama's lofty vision of African and American cooperation, of mute, African and American mutual responsibility, you know, embodied in miniature, uh, and also an antidote, um, or a potential antidote, or the beginning of a potential antidote. Um, you know, uh, I mean, here is a society ripped apart by by these these, art, these largely artificial differences, and here is a here is a beginning of an antidote that is based on something that unites us all, which is our. Common vulnerability to illness and injury and our common hope for life mm, you know mm. I think it's I find this stuff very moving mm. I, I, and and partly because of the enormous support that that, it, that this this clinic that Dao founded has in its community, particularly among the women who have a real say in its operations and meanwhile now Deo is not involved; others are running things it, it you know it, this has happened rather quickly you know I think we 're used to the notion that people who found these kinds of things, you know, that, 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 that these creations begin and end with the founder. And in his case, you know, it's going on without him. And, and, and it, 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 it's like his friend and mentor, Paul Farmer, you know, these guys are effective idealists. Yes. That is, they try to build something larger than themselves.
0: Yes. And we should, we should note here that this clinic that he has um, built uh, in Burundi is in an area that is almost completely Hutu. He is a Tutsi. His friends and many family members were killed by Hutus. He holds no grudges. He says, in fact, to a woman who apologizes for what happened and who, it's not really known, but who may have had a hand in what happened. He says, what happened happened. Let's work on the clinic. Let's put this tragedy behind us because remembering is not going to benefit anyone.
1: Right. Well, of course, he he also doesn't want anyone to think that he's seeking revenge. Yes. He might get killed? But yeah, yeah. You know, but I mean, I, I think he means that in you know several different ways. I must say that you know around the clinic, nobody even thinks about the ethnic question anymore. In Burundi, you know, Burundi is terribly poor, and and, and it's not as though people killed. Only three percent of young men joined armed movements during the war. Those those civilians who who killed or injured others probably mostly seem to have done it out of fear. That's the general feeling. You know, almost uh, preemptive violence. It, it, is not, these are not violent people. <laughs> and, and I think, I think they're, they really are eager to put war behind them for good. And, and perhaps even these, these differences, certainly around that clinic, you do not feel. It's just not an issue. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. and- anyway, it's pretty hard to, when you're among strangers. It's pretty hard to tell who's who.
0: Right. Well. Well. Again, there there are so many um, questions that you uh, I think um, admirably leave open. But in the history of Burundi, there was denial about ethnic strife uh, yep. by the Tutsi-led government, right. and it was it was a cover for for oppression of Hutus. Exactly. And so, there's times when denial that there's there's this past and denial that uh, there's any difference between Hutus and Tutsis has been used. Uh, you know, with with malign results, right?
1: It's a very tricky issue. Um, absolutely, you don't. When it is denial, then it's probably almost by definition not good. But when it when it really has ceased to be an issue, that's that's just fine.
2: Yeah, so, yeah. I,
1: and and I, I'm not saying that it ceased to be an issue, but I think the other ones are more important, uh, particularly in Burundi now. Burundi yeah. is, Burundi, Burundi's government is run uh, by uh, Hutu, a former militia leader. Uh, he's elected president. Um, and there are multi party multi ethnic parties there now, I think most of the politicking that 's going on is not along ethnic lines at all. you know it really has more to do with but the country is tremendously poor, and so long as a country is tremendously poor, then it is always any peace that it that it enjoys is frail you know by definition and and things that have divided a country before can always be used again by entrepreneurs of violence you know
0: you um you opened the book with uh a poem, part of a poem from uh, Wordsworth. Yeah. That's where you get your title. Yes. Though nothing can bring back the hour of splendor in the grass, of glory in the flower, we will grieve not, rather find strength in what remains behind. Yeah. I was reminded of a, another literary reference, and that is, um, Blake, uh, drive your cart and plow over the bones of the dead. You know that one?
1: No, I wish I had. It <laughs> might have been a better title. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I want to uh, thank my friend John, who who reminds me of that quote from time to time, because it's such a precious one. Um, Tracy, now in, in reading this, um, of course we know that that Deo is doing a lot of processing <laughs> of his past and the things he's witnessed, but there's there's a strong sense that you are too. I mean that you're you're really grappling uncomfortably with some things, some some issues that are on your mind. I'm sure you know. Obviously, there's the one of of your role as uh, dredger up of memories, you know. Uh-huh. But were there some personal things for you beyond that?
1: No, I don't think so. I mean, I um, let me think. I I hadn't really. Well, well
0: let me let me ask about one. I mean, a, a question that you raise, uh, maybe not directly, but it comes it certainly comes up is is religion. And oh, belief yeah. in God. We've got, we've got a guy whose actual given name is Deo Gracias, thanks, yeah. thanks be to God, who is still, to some extent, a believer despite what he saw. Uh-huh. And despite, you know, horrible, horrible stuff, like in some cases, you know, members of the clergy in Burundi and, well, uh, and Rwanda. in Rwanda more. Yes, I mean, so fa- facilitating slaughter. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, little details like this—the um, this song that uh, Rwandan uh, Genesee dares, to use the French term, yeah. uh, as they hacked people to death, sung this little work song. God is yeah. just. God is never unjust. And we will finish them soon. Keep working. Keep working. Yeah. Um, and yet, you um, you accompany um, Deo to a cathedral in New York, um, and uh, you say he somehow reconciled his faith with um, what he with genocide. What about you? Is well, that an issue for you at all, or are you a
1: person free of such? I'm not particularly such... religious person, yeah. but I, I think, uh, but I, but I try to be respectful, uh, and I, I mean, I try, I mean, deep down, respectful. I, I certainly began to. I, I, well, I'm married to a religious person, and also my uh-huh. experiences in Haiti um, led me to realize that. Uh, just how incredibly important religion is to many people uh, who aren't, you know. I mean, there's there's a kind of radical Christianity that that doesn't just sort of say, you know, you'll get pie in the sky when you die. It's it's saying, you know, um, it looks toward the here and now. And I've and I've run into some wonderful. Religious people in in those in those places who were actually doing uh, really terrific work. That, I must say it usually seems to be Jesuits, but mm-hmm. never mind. That. <laughs> and and you know, and Paul Farmer is quite a religious person. Yeah, there own, you go. Yeah. In yeah. own way, I I thought Deus, but but I but I wanted to. I, I just I, I want to try to understand it. I, I don't necessarily um, feel it myself, but. I'm really interested in other people's faith. As a writer, you know. Yeah. Uh, well, I loved what Dale said. You know, in, in a half-jocular way, he said, he said, "You know, I do believe in God." He said, "I," but he said, "I think God gave human beings so much, so much um, independence and, and power, and, and uh, you know, and he." He said, you know, he worked really hard, and this is the gist of it. And then he and he said, I think I'm kind of tired. You're you're mature now. I think I'll go take a nap. And then he paused and he said, I think it's time for God to get up, <laughs> to wake up. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I,
0: I was noticing earlier, I called attention to it. Uh, your use of the word stations to describe these yeah. these places on uh, Deo's journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, a reference obviously to Stations of the Cross. Yes. Uh, so what are you doing there, Tracy? Huh?
1: <laughs> I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> <laughs>
2: you, you
0: had a, There are a couple of very interesting, I mean, there are a lot of very interesting lines in this book, but one that caught my attention was, um, when you first um, met Deo, you thought he was a lot younger than he actually was. He was actually still pretty young, what, about 30 or so? Mm-hmm. Uh, but you thought he was younger, and you said, this impression of innocence lingered even after I knew it was mostly inaccurate. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the Deo that you paint in this book is... Uh, a wonderfully ingenuous guy. I mean just open-hearted, compassionate as can be, idealistic. So what do you mean
2: by well, saying I think that his
1: experience is just beyond that of almost anyone, you know, uh, around it? I'm not sure you could call someone with that kind of experience innocent. The, uh, I see what
0: you mean. Yeah.
1: Um but you're the I think that characterization's perfectly accurate. He's He's also a person, you know, an emotional person uh, in a, in the a country that values science, silences and is rather like his mother, that way. But he, um, th- you know, the other thing that that other feeling that I had, I I wrote a little bit about this when I went with him. We landed in Burundi, and suddenly. He was a size larger. For me. Mm-hmm. He was in charge. It's it's always interesting to see people in different contexts, and you know, the context I'd seen him before was as a student, and a you know, sort of a a worker for for PIH. And to see it was a great comfort, by the way, to have someone who just sort of <laughs> took charge in a in a strange place. Um, but I don't think of him as as innocent. I think, of or ingenuous. I mean, he can be very uh, he. The work he did to get the clinic going required an enormous amount of, you know, diplomacy and, you know, um, so I.
0: Yeah, by calling him ingenuous, I certainly didn't mean an ingenue, but I. Yeah. I meant a, a guy who seems guileless.
1: Well, I think he—he's not cynical. Uh huh. He's—he's very wary, as he says, of 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 people's intentions, but he's not cynical.
2: Mm hmm.
1: Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Uh, uh, Dale carries a, a tremendous heavy burden of memory. Um, you know much heavier than than anyone else I know um but and of course that affects the way he sees the world but he handles it with enormous grace it seems to me
0: and there's that word grace okay <laughs> <laughs>
1: What's, what what are you up to these days, <laughs> Michael? <are> you, <laughs> have you been born again?
0: <laughs> well, no. You know, it's funny because as a as a as a radio guy, I, I like to do to guys like you what you like to do to your subjects. Uh-huh. Uh huh. So well, thanks
1: a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I often sa- have said that I would never let anybody do what I do to me what I do to people.
0: I don't want to get literary here because I think your work uh is is uh too good to uh just um you know, cheaply make literary references for its own sake. You don't have that self regarding quality. But but is um to use um Deo's phrase Joe Conrad in this book.
1: <laughs> Joe Conrad. Yeah, I, I love that when he said that. We would gotten up to the place where he built the village where he, the clinic is now. And he said uh here we are in the land of Joe Conrad, meaning there had never been electric light there, <laughs> and and now there is. By the way, they they have a beautiful solar installation for the clinic. Um, no, I, I mean I God, you know I love that book. I, I read you, that book. I know it's I know it's received.
0: You mean Heart of darkness?
1: Hardest darkness. It's it, you know there is a there is a, for lack of a better quick term, uh, a politically correct line on that book that excoriates it. But I, I know of no other book that that catches the. The, the, the you know the catch catches just how awful that uh, period of colonialism was, and of course that is Belgian colonialism in in the Congo. Um, I think if you if you consulted that wonderful book by Adam Hochschild, uh, King Leopold's Ghost, you know, a real history of, of of the of the Congo, um, uh, of the colonial the, the horrors of the Belgian, Belgian Congo, rule. yeah, uh, you you know uh, I, I think one should be respectful of that novel. It's also I just think it's a great novel, but I, I wasn't thinking of, of Conrad, honestly. I, I, you know, I'll, t- I'll tell you, the, the the literary person I went to just... I didn't want to read any of the other books um, you know, of, of stories like this because I didn't want to be affected by them, not out of disrespect for them, but just because I didn't want to be influenced. But I did reread um, C- Coetzee, Waiting for the Barbarians, which is, I think, a great book, and, and I, I just wanted... Uh, uh, I wanted to, uh, uh, there was something about it that I remembered, that, that just in the feeling of it, that I wanted to, I just wanted to feel again.
0: That's so interesting, because I honestly, when I read the first half, uh, was thinking of The Life and Times of Michael Kay. By Kutsia. have you read that? I haven't. Well, I've
1: got a lot to read, you know.
0: Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting that I picked up on a Katsia feeling, even though I had the wrong book. <laughs> uh, how, how fascinating! So no Conrad. Uh, uh, well,
1: I love Conrad. It's just I didn't think of it.
0: Not consciously. No. Well, I you know, I'm sure you remember well the end of Heart of Darkness, the very very end uh, yeah. with the character who's just told the story. Uh, sitting on this boat and looking, you know, and then a description of of the darkness on the Thames River, you know, into the heart of darkness, and and you end the main part of your book with this: We stared out at the lake. A couple of drab old wooden workboats moved slowly across our field of vision, their engines just within our hearing, heading across Kivu toward the Congo.
1: <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> really are. You're, listen, you know, <laughs> you want to write a monograph on this. I, I <laughs> No, no, I don't
0: want to be an academic. I really no, don't. No, I really
1: don't. That's very, that's very interesting. I, that, that didn't occur to me, but there
0: you go. And, and people haven't been bringing that up, huh?
1: No one's brought that up yet. Not until you. It's <laughs> <laughs> pretty interesting, though. Um,
0: th- there's a, um, a feeling, and again, maybe this is... Uh, the interviewer here projecting various things, um, which I I guess is unavoidable, huh? Um, But there's a feeling in these two books of yours that in a a sense are are linked in all kinds of ways, Mountains Beyond Mountains and Strength in What Remains, of two amazing individuals of of just huge conscience who by um, force of will and amazing resourcefulness and self-sacrificing qualities and all of that are, are attempting in a sense to make up for the misdeeds and the the failings and um, the shortcomings of, of, of large numbers of people, you know? I mean, correct huge societal wrongs. And somehow they're succeeding on a level that you'd never think individuals could make a difference, you know?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I guess, you know, if I look at uh, what they've done collectively, and, and, of course, Paul's been around a lot longer and he has a huge organization now, um, Paul Farmer, that is. Uh, but when I look at what they've done, uh, you know, if you measured it against the just the, epi- the, the, the sheer numbers of epidemic dis- you know, concerning ep- epidemic disease in the world, you'd say, well, it's a drop in the bucket. But for me, it is extremely heartening to know that there are some forces <laughs> going the other way. That is, you know, so much seems to be... It, 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 we start to feel like in human history... Epidemic and epidemics and and murder and mayhem are 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 the you know are the real forces. Mm-hmm. The world. And it is nice to know that there are some countervailing forces out there. And and it's nice to see some of them. It's nice to see real competence, even brilliance, being applied to you know to, toward that the, the sort of struggle against the, you know forces of chaos and mm-hmm. and, and violence. I, <clears throat> I find it very uh, heartening. I, you know, I like being around those people. I mean, you know, and I also wanted to try to make them seem whole. They're not; these are not saints. These are not, um, you know, iconic images. They're real people, just like you and me. Mm-hmm. In some ways.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: So, uh, do you do you um, find yourself recharged by these stories?
1: Yeah, I think so. I, although it's time for me to to turn to something new, Yeah. I think. <laughs> as a writer, you know, unless uh, you I, get typecast, I tend to yes. connected with these uh, both organizations, uh, but as a you know a private person, I mean, you know, as a fundraiser or whatever.
0: Partners in Health and Village Health Works.
1: Villagehealthworks.org.
0: dot org Great. Partners in Health is PIH.org? Yes. And uh, VillageHealthWorks.org. dot Yep. Well, great, Tracy. Thanks. Again.
1: Nice to talk to you. Thank you. Likewise. Again.
0: Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Tracy Kidder discussing his new book, Strength in What Remains. And by the way, when we spoke, Tracy wanted to make it very clear that only a small minority of Burundians participated in the recent carnage there. Many, like Deo, refused to take part, and Tracy's book has a number of stories of kindness and altruism. There was, for instance, the Hutu woman who protected Deo in a Rwandan refugee camp at great risk to her own life. And there was the Burundian school where Hutu militiamen ordered the schoolboys to divide themselves into Hutu and Tutsi so that the militia could slaughter the Tutsis. Well, the Hutu boys could have saved themselves simply by complying with that order, but that would have meant fingering their classmates. They refused and were massacred along with the Tutsi children. But that sort of heroism didn't get nearly as much play in the world media as the horror stories did. And Rebecca Solnit says that's often the case with disaster reporting. It tends to emphasize the worst of humanity, she says. But in her own research and the work of so-called disaster sociologists, she discovered a different truth, that ordinary people usually behave quite admirably in the wake of calamity. She makes that point in her most recent book. It's called A Paradise Built in Hell the extraordinary communities that arise in disaster. Solnit's look into post-disaster behavior began with her own experiences in the Loma Prieta earthquake 20 years ago, and it's on that topic that we began our interview. Well, let me just start by asking, um, where were you on October 17, 1989,
3: at 5.04 p.m.? I was sitting at my desk uh, revising the manuscript of my first book on my clunky old Apple computer um, in a my desk in a bay window of an apartment uh, on the sand of the Western Edition of San Francisco, and my first impulse was to hit save, uh, which didn't work. The power had already gone off. <laughs> and, you know, I'm a, I've am a been here most of my life, so I just thought, oh, you know, an earthquake. And then at a certain point I noticed my stand-up lamp was kind of standing on its rim and rocking back and forth pretty wildly. So I got into a doorway and watched a few things crash and... Uh, you know, that's how it began for me.
0: You know, I don't usually insert myself and my stories into these interviews, but you, you've left me no choice. I was working on a probably the same generation Mac at exactly the same moment. Uh, I don't remember whether I hit, hit save or not, um, but I did run to a doorway and listened as things crashed.
3: <laughs> yeah, you know, I wish I'd been into I have uh, friends who had some phenomenal experience at the ballpark, a friend who was at the gates of Golden Gate Park and saw the electrostatic shock and the the wave of motion run over the surface of the Earth and uh, trees sway and things, you know, this phenomenal stuff. Very few people really get to see and observe carefully.
0: When you say electrostatic shock, what do you mean?
3: It's It really is like this glowing shock wave that you can see roll over the surface of the Earth. And he described it. He's actually my ex-boyfriend. He described it to Philip Fradkin, who's written a lot about earthquakes and lives in the Bay Area, who confirmed um, that it's a real phenomenon and explained what it is.
0: And, and what is it?
3: You know, I guess the uh, movement of the earth generates. You know, this is not my this is not disaster sociology. This is you know uh, geophysics or something. But uh, you know, I guess a lot of energy is generated by the motion, and that there is. I think it's. You know, I can look it up um, later on, but I think it's an electrostatic wave.
0: Huh? There were reports in the 1906 San Francisco quake of the the beach glowing in places.
3: That's from the opening of Phillips' uh, book, yeah, and uh, that's what it is. Anyway, my ex was sitting in his car facing the Arguello Gates of Golden Gate Park, and got to see all this amazing stuff, and uh, you know, and really see the earth kind of ripple like you know, like muscles rippling under skin and et cetera. And um you know, and I was writing about the Kennedy assassination and I hit save. <laughs> Boy Oh, and he got to fight the fire at the marina too. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh really?
3: He went down as one of the volunteers who ended up carrying hose.
0: And now you're trained to um participate in emergency response, yes?
3: Yeah, I went a few years ago, partly for the sake of the book, partly because I've been meaning to do it forever anyway, and got my NERT training, NERT being a nerdy acronym that stands (laughs) for Neighborhood Emergency Response Teams. There's a lot of programs like it around the country, but I think NERT is one of the most visible.
0: So um, what most stays with you from those days um, after the Loma Prieta quake in 1989?
3: You know, There was nothing tangible. I didn't see a lot of destroyed infrastructure, and it wasn't that impressive. The Bay Bridge just didn't exist for practical purposes for months afterwards. What did impress me was my own internal transformation, and then the similar things I heard from people around me. There was somebody I was angry at who just immediately ceased to matter forever, and so did the anger. I was drawn into this very kind of intense and rich sense of immediacy, of the here and now, you know, I was very present in San Francisco. The people who I care about mattered a great deal. Um, the long term things we, and the faraway things we often spend our time fretting about, just kind of disappeared. You know, it's almost like a camera focus. You go from this kind of vague, panning shot of all kinds of stuff to this very tight focus on the here and now. That's very enlivening, and you feel very wide awake. Um, you know, you know that. Uh, People have died, and that mortality is very near, but you feel more alive because of it. You know, it's not good that there are disasters, but the state of mind we often enter is, you know, very good often.
0: Well, you know, some people who've been through wars describe a nostalgia for that time of clarity and focus, too.
3: Yeah, I think it's really important with talking about wars to distinguish between the way civilians survive, say, the London Blitz, and the kind of horror of the battlefield where you're killing and being killed and... You know the real ugliness of war is in the forefront on both sides.
2: Hmm.
3: At uh, because war is a state of emergency. It's not so different than other emergencies. Often happens um, like wartime United States with the Victory Gardens and people having that sense of pulling together, pulling out of the depression, things being kind of hopped up, people mixing it up in ways they hadn't before, as they did in uh, Britain during the Blitz and you know their emergency
0: right well well you've you've touched on a couple of things that um really form I think the core of your argument in your book, um yeah which is this uh, collective spirit that comes up um, how people respond as a community I mean we have this um we definitely have this one notion that's uh pretty common in fiction that people will turn into mobs and savages and run wild
3: common not only in fiction but in movies and the news uh that Either we're these kind of venomous wolves who will rip each other to shreds, or we're these helpless sheep who will mill around stupidly until somebody with authority or, uh, you know, machismo tells us what to do.
0: <laughs> yeah, that thin veneer of civilization gets disrupted by a disaster?
3: Uh, yes.
0: And uh, the real bestial nature of humanity comes out?
3: Yes. <laughs> That's the cliche, and you see it over and over again. You see it both ways. And there was this very funny piece in the San Francisco Chronicle for the Loma Prieta anniversary, of immediately after the earthquake, somebody at the World Series game in Candlestick Park, you know, the game between the A's and the Giants, the the base the base uh, World Series, holds up a sign responding to the earthquake that says, "That was nothing. Wait till the Giants bat," and it's just like so nonchalant and so you know humorous that you know the biggest earthquake in you know 85 years has just happened and this guy isn't even freaked out Mm. and uh you know and he's actually making jokes instantly and the story below it was about people being terrorized and it's kind of like you know that's not what your picture says Mm. and there's a weird way the media people fall into these stereotypes about um what the response is. I constantly read about panic and uh, disaster stories, which doesn't really exist um, for the most part, in that large groups of people don't generally lose their minds and do crazy, um, you know, hysterical things in which they make foolish decisions or fail to save themselves or need to be rescued.
0: Well, for this book, uh, A Paradise Built in Hell, you um, proceeded to look into other disasters to see how people reacted, um, and uh, the disasters we're talking about are the 1906 San Francisco earthquake, the 1917 Halifax explosion, in which a, uh ammunition-laden ship exploded, killing a lot of people and ripping up the town, uh, the 1985 Mexico City earthquake, and uh, September 11th terror attacks in New York City, and then finally Katrina in New Orleans. Um, uh, in a nutshell, what did you find out about how people...
3: Well, acted. I touched on it earlier. There are two things that really interested me. The subtitle of uh, my book, A Paradise Built in Hell, is the Extraordinary Communities that Arise in Disaster. And I sometimes think it's a pretty imperfect subtitle because the communities really interest me and they matter. And the point there is that people actually behave with enormous improvisational creativity, resourcefulness, generosity, and courage for the most part. And they often, in the course of that, achieve... However, ephemerally, a better sense of self-social possibility and social connection than they have in everyday life, which is another kind of disaster we could talk about. Mm-hmm. The side that's not so reflected in that subtitle is the internal transformation, the subjective experience, which I talked about a little bit for myself, the sense of almost the kind of awakening, awareness of mortalities, a solidarity that a Buddhist would call compassion for all beings, uh, lack of attachment to material goods and the past and future in the way that we usually worry about whether our mother loved us enough when we were eight and what our pension plan looks like or something. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, a certain kind of courage and uh, certain kind, you know, and, and often uh, enormous sense of energy, a bit of excitement, and definitely fear and some grief we don't really have the emotional language to talk about that. Unhappy and sad sound like light and heavy. And I, the language I started to use is like deep and shallow, that there's a real depth to people's experience. And I think we crave depth. Uh, we crave a depth of connection to each other, a depth of meaning to what we do with our lives. And people find that depth in disaster.
0: So, for instance, in the 1906 quake, you have a lot of stories about uh, ordinary people um, stepping up and, and helping um, their fellow citizens make yes. makeshift kitchens and hospitals and uh, merchants giving supplies away to people, things like that. And yet um, there's this other story of, of armed troops you know, with shoot-to-kill orders, you know, quelling looters and other kinds of mayhem.
3: Yes, I said that, you know, this is why I think that the information in the book matters so much. It's part of what prompted me to write it after Katrina is that, I had this information, and in a way you can say people were dying for lack of it. The clichés we're burdened with not only make for crappy Hollywood movies, but but they make for, uh, you know, terrible emergency response often. The assumption is that we revert to our savage and bestial nature, and therefore a lot of authorities assume that their response needs to be to control us and uh, repression and policing rather than rescuing and working with citizens. In San Francisco, in 1906, had never really been written about quite boldly enough in just how horrific that experience was, except, of course, by the survivors themselves, who were furious at the United States Army, the city, and some other uh, institutions like the National Guard, who essentially staged a hostile takeover of the city. The mayor issued a shoot-to-kill order for allegedly for looters, but it justified shooting all kinds of other people, a great many of them innocent. We'll never know how many since bodies were thrown into the bay and into the fire. Uh, you see in a lot of disasters, in 1906, the Mexico City earthquake and Katrina all have this in common, that people experienced two disasters. One was somewhat natural, the earthquake. Or hurricane, the other was a social catastrophe uh generated largely by institutional misconduct, driven by a lot of false beliefs and hysterical fears and the one thing you can add to that is that there's popular panic is vanishingly rare, essentially it doesn't exist, but institutional panic I thought and the elite panic the disaster sociologists I spoke with describe you know is a real problem.
0: Uh, Katrina is one where this this is really uh, dramatic. Um, The image of Katrina in the early days um, of New Orleans, you know, with a large urban poor population, was that there were gangs on the streets, there were horrors taking place on the streets and then in places like the convention center where all those people took shelter, Uh, and that the uh, police, you know, the thin blue line was the only thing between um, savagery and uh, civilization, you tell a story that's kind of the opposite.
3: Part of the tragedy of Katrina is that, you know, in a very racialized way, the people who were left behind, which included a lot of seniors, uh, moms and babies, were demonized as those marauding hordes, those savage beasts. And the response shifted from rescue to control to policing. Uh, the governor of uh, Louisiana said, during that week, I'm sending in my National Guard troops. They have M-16s that are locked and loaded, and they know how to use them. That is not a rescue attempt. That's a hostile takeover. And, uh, you know, the media was all too willing to believe things that turned out to be rumors and fictions of mass rapes, mass murders, and just, uh, you know, some, some form of hysterical Hollywood barbarism. In fact, there was, I think, a lot of extraordinary barbarism, but it was often on the part of the authorities, including one well-known case, the sheriff of Gretna and his henchmen who turned people back at gunpoint from evacuating the flooded city on the bridge to dry land where things were still fairly functional, and a number of less well-known stories, a number of cases in which the police murdered people, and... uh a story I came across that had never really been uh, investigated and that my friend A.C. Thompson investigated for The Nation, and we, you know, we both reported on, of white vigilantes in the suburbs shooting black people and, so far as we can tell, uh, murdering several of them on the, the apparent assumption that all black people were looters.
0: Was any uh, legal action ever taken as a result of the investigation that you and, and your friend A.C. Thompson did?
3: Uh you know there's some investigations happening now, but the New Orleans police have shown a distinct lack of interest in the story through, uh over the last four years. They never even took a report when Donnell Harrington went in to tell them um you know that he'd been nearly murdered and there's been deep lack of interest on the part of the uh, city and state authorities
0: your book is 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 really a um a strike against this very pessimistic idea of ordinary people as uh, requiring a lot of uh, control um you say they really act on you know their their best impulses when um there is no control around when they're allowed to help each other out um and i imagine you could be accused of a, of some seriously wishful thinking there um well do
3: evidence you, is there
0: so so you don't think um your prey to maybe um something that's the obverse of the pessimism that those other folks are
3: well, to. try to, you know, the thing is that you have you have all these people making these very grim assumptions who got everything wrong in Katrina, and it was interesting to see how quickly newspaper columnists in the New York Times and the UK Guardian, etc., were ready to write about the you know the the, the beast below the thin veneer of civilization, etc., based on totally false evidence, you know if if the notion is we revert to our original nature and disaster, then the question is, what do we revert to? And people revert to something that's resourceful, altruistic, uh, and very communitarian and pretty trustworthy overall. And people commit crimes, but, you know, often they commit more crimes in everyday life. And uh, so, you know, and I'm drawing from a disaster sociology that goes back to World War II, looking very carefully at how people respond to these uh, disasters using all the meticulousness, all the dispassionateness, all the sort of statistical surveys and field work sociologists live in. I'm drawing on their conclusions. This is not a hypothesis. This is reporting on what actually happens in the great majority of disasters mm. studied by, you know, a large group of sociologists mm. over 65 years. So, you know, the place where I'm speculative is saying, well, is this our real human nature? And what's meaningful for me here, that's not so much what the sociologists talk about, is not what people do, but what they feel. And they often feel an enormous sense of joy that's missing from their everyday life. That's about the fact that people want meaningful work, they want social connection, they want to feel like members of civil society, they want a sense of power and agency in their own lives and in the world around them. And in a weird way, they get that in disaster and that's off you know, and the book in some sense is a critique of the disaster of everyday life, because only when everyday life is a disaster can even a calamity sometimes become a reprieve from it. You know, and so that gets called utopian, except that it's based on some very substantial uh, factual information, and I find a lot of pessimism is actually based, on um, far sketchier and often stereotypical and clichéd and easily disprovable stuff.
0: You know, I, n- I notice that the stereotyped images you're talking about, which are found in, you know, popular entertainments and also in the um, the news of the If It Bleeds, It Leads variety, um, is usually a depiction um, of urban populations going amok. When disasters happen in rural areas, folks, you know, <laughs> pull together and Help each other out, I think that's the usual depiction,
3: yeah, and it's partly a you know it's a suspicion of urban people, which is often very racialized, and I think what we need to address, which is at the core of that, the assumption is that if human beings are animals when they're not under control, you 've got the best justification possible for a society based on massive control from above an authoritarian and ultimately violent society, except that the violence is institutional violence. And that's, you know, the assumption that without authority figures we're monsters or we're helpless is the best justification authority figures have for their own existence and their own behavior. Let me let
0: me ask you about the title of your book, A Paradise Built in Hell. What do those terms, paradise and hell, mean to you?
3: Well, I think the really important thing about disasters is that hell is a given. A disaster is inherently a hell. People lose things, people are frightened, uh, people are injured. people die and um but sometimes and not it's not a guarantee uh, you know so hell is the given a paradise is sometimes constructed by the way people improvise this altruistic and creative and collective response and by the emotions of you know a kind of fulfilled desire for solidarity, belonging, connection, and purpose that provides
0: um. You write that, uh, for weeks after the big earthquake of 1989, friendship and love counted for a lot. And I think you remarked somewhere else that a lot of us loved, you know, th- those weeks after the quake. Um, do you look forward to another one?
3: I don't look forward to it because who knows, I may be the, you know, I may get crushed by a building. I may lose people close to me. and um, you know, the question is not, um, is the next disaster going to be really fun? Because, you know, disasters are never something to look forward to. The question is, what do we learn from these moments about our own deepest desires and our own deepest possibilities that we can realize in ordinary times? And I think that this provides evidence, um, both of what makes us happy, happier than lots of shopping and uh, lots of plastic surgery, whatever's being peddled at us by the people who profit from, you know, these sort of false, notions to um, you know you, you know it shifts it over to both possibilities about who we can be together and a sense of what our deepest desires are separately that are fulfilled often collectively you know it shifts us away from a kind of privatized consumer reality to uh, what we might as well just call civil society and that civil society as, a necessity in an emergency and a pleasure at all times, a pleasure in power and belonging in voice, in, uh, you know, the ability to build a meaningful society that I don't think a lot of people feel a lot of the time. And when they do feel it, the joy is incredible.
0: Well, Rebecca, thank you.
3: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: Rebecca Solnit. Her latest book is A Paradise Built in Hell the extraordinary communities that arise in disaster this has been the 7th avenue project i'm robert polly i'll be back next week <laughs>
2: personas murieron, en un mercado mayor, que Dios los tenga en el Cielo, en Santa Cruz sucedió. En San Francisco Marina, toda una cuadra encendió, unos perdieron la vida, el maldito temblor